irrespective. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop chorus. Everybody, this is Rev Yearwood. I am so excited for this guest today, uh, Jeremy Orr. Uh, Jeremy, how are you doing today? Doing good. It's just as excited and happy to be here. Man, it is really good to, you know, I, I, I like my lawyers now. You know what I'm saying? I, I like to keep them, you know, because you never know. Listen, for some of y'all in the climate movement, y'all, you know, y'all up there in Vermont and and in and Sonoma County, you know, we some of us work in Detroit and New Orleans, so you got to know who your lawyers are. Yeah, <laughs> you got to yeah, have them on deck. <laughs> <laughs> you got them ready. So it's good to have them. So I'm always, I'm always excited, particularly those lawyers who are in the movement. And uh, for those who don't know Jeremy, Jeremy Orr focuses on drinking water and source water protection issues, working to ensure that everyone has access to safe, sufficient, and affordable drinking water. Uh, with a background in grassroots community organizing and public interest law, Jeremy most recently served as the National State Program Director for the People's Climate Movement and as an Environmental Justice Coordinator for the Transnational Environmental Law Clinic. Jeremy Her holds a bachelor's, master's, and law degree from the Michigan State University. Uh, that, that's that's go green, right? Is that is that, is that, is that how that goes? Yes, yeah, go green, go white. That's what it is. Go green. That's right. I said go green, go white. Oh man, and he is based in Shy Town. Man, Jeremy, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good, man. Just like I mentioned, really excited to be here to talk about this issue. You know, I'm, I'm a I'm a fan of your work and the organization, and a fan of the podcast. So excited to to talk to you and and kind of reach a a, a different audience about such an important topic. No, most definitely. Well, welcome uh, to the show, and thank you for joining the conversation. For those that don't know your body of work and don't know you, please tell us some something about, basically tell us who is Jeremy Orr. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So kind of like you mentioned, right, this, this work is taking place all over the country. And for some of us as advocates, especially in this environmental and, and, and climate space, uh, you know, we're we're in places that you know tend to be uncommon when we think about environmental issues, right? I'm 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 from Detroit, right? Born and raised uh, on the playground is where I spent most of my days. Detroit versus uh, everybody. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I'm I'm from the city, man. Um, you know, I grew up in um, you know in the city, right? City proper. Uh, you know, grew up spending most of my summers, um, you know, out at my grandparents' house in, in Southwest Detroit, right? Where where which is known for uh, you know to be one of the most polluted. Uh, community in the country, the most polluted in the state, the 48217 zip code, right? It's where you have, uh, um, you know, many oil refineries and steel mills and all these industrial polluters butting right up against um, residents, homes, right? I could, mm. I could, I could see the, the oil refinery from my grandparents' backyard, right? So, um, you know, I, I grew up kind of in this space of um, of living through environmental injustice and not, not necessarily knowing what it was. I didn't even recognize it as a kid. And not even into adulthood, right? Only, only was it when I got started in kind of movement work and community organizing back in my early 20s uh, in an environmental injustice issue kind of came up was that I was able to start putting a, a name to that experience, right? That, that I experienced and that other folks are experiencing 
all over the country and, and labeling it as, you know, climate justice and environmental justice issues. But, uh, you know, for me, you know, I've been at an RDC for about three years. I predominantly work on uh, Safe Drinking Water Act enforcement issues. But as you noted in the introduction, uh, you know, I've kind of spent my career in the environmental advocacy across the spectrum from, uh, you know, clean air, you know, land use, um, uh, you, you, you name it, right? And now predominantly focus on water contamination. That's what's up. For those who don't know NRDC, what is NRDC? So NRDC, uh, Natural Resources Defense Council, is uh, really at this point now an international uh, environmental advocate who has been around for over 50 years, uh, really one of the larger uh, kind of environmental advocates around the country and around the world. And, uh, we really focus on uh, you know issues of protecting uh, the environment and, and human health as it relates to um, you know kind of land, water, air, nature, y- you name it. You know, for those who don't know NRDC's work, they do um, a lot of great things uh, throughout the country and the world in regards of taking on the climate crisis. And so, and as Jeremy mentioned, they are about 50 or a little over 50 years old. And, you know, there's some good and bad with that uh, within our movement. And I'm definitely glad like them and many others um, who are who have been around now for half a century, they're dealing with the, the good and the bad as an organization, particularly in how they can make sure and branch out and be more inclusive, be more diverse, and understand that those on the front lines and defense lines of this issue um, are protected. So definitely glad to see Jeremy there um, in his capacity. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question about, you know, how your work ensures um, that black people will be here in the future. Just, just break it on down with the climate crisis. But before I get to that, I'm sure you never, you never would have thought you would have gotten this question on a climate show. Do you know Trick Trick? Man, so do I know Trick Trick personally? No, but do I know Trick Trick? Yeah, everybody yeah, yeah. <laughs> from Detroit, you know Trick Trick. If, if you from Detroit, listen, if you if you from Detroit, yeah. you've got to know Trick Trick. <laughs> you, yeah, yeah. You, you know, if you come into Detroit, you you, you got you to know be, Trick Trick. You better know Trick Trick. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm sure you probably never thought. My goodness, I never thought <laughs> I'd have got a question about Trick Trick on a climate show. But actually. Just so folks know, Trick Trick is a friend of the Hip Hop Caucus and has been doing a lot of work regarding our voting work, and we appreciate Trick Trick. But he is, he's, he, him and many others, and shout out to all those in Detroit. We have, a, we have an amazing uh, uh, group of folks in Detroit. Um, Detroit's amazing um, in that regard uh, because it's just, there's just a certain energy, as Jeremy mentioned, that comes out of Detroit. But with the energy, Jeremy, I guess the, the bottom line is that, man, how, how is the work you're doing now coming from that environment, coming from your people? How does the work you're doing now ensure there will be black people in the future? Yeah, and, and I, man, that's, a, that's an important question, right? And, and, the, and the way you frame it is so important, right, that there will be black people in the future specifically. I think, you know, when, when I think about, you know, environmental issues, right, be it climate, water, land use, right, contamination, hazardous waste, you name it, we know the data shows as facts, right? Like, like our people, right? Black people tend to be, um, you know, much more likely to be subject to environmental degradation than, than any other, um, you know, demographic in the country, right? And oftentimes we look at it, it's not even, it's not even across um, socioeconomic status, right? We're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, black people who can make money and black people who ain't making money, right? Depending on where you live at, right? You're subject to these environmental injustices and, and have been, uh, you know, since before this country was even a country, 
right? Mm-hmm. So we're, we're talking, you know, centuries of, of, of black people being on the lower rungs of society. And that includes, uh, you know, environmental protection. So when I think about the work that I do and the work that I have done over the years, I mentioned, you know, I kind of, I come out of grassroots organizing. I come out of environmental justice where my focus has been uh, really, uh, you know, on, on the, on the, on the systemic racism portion of environmental advocacy on environmental racism, right. And environmental justice and looking at, um, you know, the, the plights of, of communities of color, but in particular black communities, right. Where I grew up at, where, I, where I've lived my entire life. Uh, so when I look at the work that I do, it's, it's really been focused on, you know, how do we make sure that we're, you know, we're securing the environmental rights, which to me are human rights, right, of uh, Black communities as it relates to all these areas of, of environmental protection, right? So whether it's clean air, whether it's clean water, whether it's, whether it's places to, to play and work, right, which mm. we know directly connect to our, our mental health and well-being, like in our community. I think that work is, is so important, in particular, as I think of my work around water. Uh, you know, we know that, you know, many of the, you know, the, 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 much of the water contamination, particularly as I think of lead and lead service lines and things like that, that we'll probably get into uh, during this conversation. Uh, we know our communities, you know, subject to, um, you know, more likely to have, you know, lead service lines in their communities, more likely to have, you know, higher or elevated levels of, of lead in their blood. And, and so this work is about uh, fixing those problems. So that our community right, can, can enjoy the same environmental protections and public health and well-being that other communities enjoy so that we can be here long into the future. That's real. That's real. Let's talk about lead poisoning, actually, since you mentioned that and, and that work and also water. Because you have worked in many spaces um, on water, which we know is life. Um, the, our dear sister and brother say, many would Shoni, water is life. And so recent and ongoing events in Flint have underscored the connection between lead and water. So please tell us what effect does lead exposure have on individuals in our community? Yeah, yeah. It, you know, lead is it's really, you know, this, this issue around lead in particular really catapulted to the forefront with the Flint water crisis. It's an issue that's always been around and folks have been advocating for for years, but I think with, with, the, um, with the way Flint played out, right, I think that catapulted this issue to the forefront, not even just nationally, but globally. Right. This right. was international news and, and it got folks these last, you know, these last six or seven years since that water crisis began, like thinking about lead and talking about lead in ways that it hasn't before. And one of the things that it's also done is kind of educated people around the dangers of lead. Right. When we look at, you know, communities where, you know, lead is being ingested through a, through a multitude of different avenues, in particular thinking of lead. Right. We know that lead is a dangerous kind of neurotoxin that causes irreversible harm. So. Like children are most vulnerable, right? So when I think about that, you think of the, the effects of on children being developmental delays, uh, learning disabilities, um, you know, issues with physical health, right? We're talking about seizures, uh, you know, things of, of mood swings, things of that sort, right? And that's just children. And when we think about adults, the way it impacts, um, you know, human adults is, you know, we, we're looking at issues of high blood pressure, uh, mm-hmm. severe headaches and migraines, you know, pains, abnormal pains, abdominal pains, also. You know, uh, mood swings in particular when we think about, um, uh, you know, pregnant people, right? Mis- miscarriages and stillbirths and, and, and premature births, right? Being an being a, 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 a indicator of or, or an effect of lead exposure. So uh, the effects are uh, very detrimental. And as mentioned there, they're irreversible. Let, let me slow down a little bit because I think that I know we have a tendency to say these things 
in a way in which almost like the trauma and the pain may not connect. In other words, you know, we're saying, and people like they're nodding their head, like, mm, that's terrible, that's bad. But when you talk about things like, um, you know, anxiety and still stillbirths and you're talking about literally neurological disease and cancer. I mean, these are horrible, horrible things um, that are happening to our community. And if you can just kind of like break down the systemic causes of lead poisoning and the related broken infrastructure in the black community, how all that's connected. Yeah, absolutely. So, so as you mentioned, there are, you know, in addition to kind of the physical ailments and effects, man, there, there are, you know, there's a long-term trauma that, that comes along with, 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 with kind of, you know, this kind of environmental injustice of lead. You know, when I think of, you know, my colleagues and friends and family who are from Flint who experience this water crisis, right? There's, you know, th there's no amount of money, right? There's no amount of settlement. There, there's, there is no resolve that will ever be able to get rid of the trauma that they experience of living through this and the trauma associated with um, also the, the physical ailments that come along with it, right? So it, it's, it's serious and severe as, as you pointed out. Um, but then we think about, you know, how, like, how do we get here, right? It, essentially, how do we get to this point mm -hmm. um, about the systemic issues of lead exposure? One thing to keep in mind is like lead, lead doesn't just naturally occur in water, right? Like, like maybe some other it's some some other um, contaminants or some other you know things will like lead has to be introduced into the system by the time it gets to your home right and comes out of your tap. So when you think about lead right or, or just water distribution period, you know my water may come from some river, lake or stream right. It'll go through my you know my water distribution system through my utility company. Um, you know it'll be supposedly be purified and cycled through, and then when it leaves there. Right. It goes through some pipes that somebody put there, you know, years ago, right? 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, in some places that still exist, right? That were made of lead that then introduced lead into my water system, right? Or introduces lead into the water coming into my home and coming out of my faucet, right? So when we think about that systemic issue, one, it's a, it's a man made issue, right? This, doesn't, this isn't something that just kind of popped up. It's there because somebody wanted it to be there. Mm. It's there because somebody still allows it to be there, right? So we've known for decades that, that lead is toxic, lead is poison, uh, but yet we have places like the city of Chicago who still allow lead pipes to be used. They actually mandated lead pipes to be used until it was 1980, 1986. This is decades after, you know, other, other cities and other places stopped using it and knew it was, was, was poisonous to water, right? And we think of it, it's really like drinking water through a lead straw. Mm. all these places around the country. So when we think about that infrastructure, right, it, it's, 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 it's an injustice and it's an infrastructure issue that's been allowed to persist long after we've known that, that it should be removed. And, you know, here we are now, in, you know, 2021, and it seems like uh, there, there's a, a lot of national conversation out of the White House and out of Congress about, you know, getting lead out of drinking water, getting these lead pipes out of the ground and, and securing the money to get the infrastructure uh, you know, get the infrastructure packages um, to states and to cities who can who can do this work. But you know, it, it's still bizarre to me that this is now. This is only now that we're seeing a national conversation when we've known for quite a long time that that this issue has persisted and remains. Right. So, so, just, 
So let's actually talk about that. I mean, I mean that's actually very important because I mean we know that groups have been talking about this and discussing this, and in your capacity as an attorney who works for um, an environmental organization, I'm sure you come across a lot of discovery in which you're like this, shaking your head that this, you're just like my 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 goodness, this is this is ridiculous how people intentionally poison people. So let's talk about that. I mean, why is it now? I mean, and not meaning now, now, the standpoint of like this moment, but why is it that it took so long to get to this point before we're getting beginning to now get some pushback against these these atrocities, to be honest? No, I, I think it's a few different reasons, but the, the ones that kind of stand out to me um, are, are, you know, kind of two. One being, I, I think, like with lead being infrastructure that we don't see, Right, in particular, the layered service lines, right, being the infrastructure that we don't see that's causing the problem. It's kind of like out of sight, out of mind, right? Like, like the idea that, uh, you know, if, if my water system isn't telling me I have lead pipes, if my water system isn't being forthright and transparent and telling me there's lead in our drinking water system, and I don't see these lead pipes that are running under the ground on a regular basis, right, I'm, I'm, I'm not really thinking about it, right? Or, or folks haven't been thinking about it for years, right? So, and, and it's not like, you know, we see pollution when we can see the smokestacks and we can mm-hmm. see, maybe pollution being dumped into a river or a lake or something, you know, this, these issues of lead is kind of out of sight, out of mind. I think that's one thing, right? But I don't think that's the only thing. I think the other thing, uh, which, is, which is much more pressing and more pertinent, is that I think the communities mostly impacted by it have, um, you know, lack the voice in political capital and political representation um, to stand up on their behalf to, to fix these issues. Right. As, as we think about, you know, where the issues still persist and we see in some communities where, you know, they're two or three times more likely, you know, black communities to have um, lead service lines and then white communities in the same city. Right. Mm. Or the same region in the same state. Uh, there's a reason for that. Right. There's a reason that, you know, if everybody had lead pipes at one point, but now everybody doesn't have lead pipes anymore. And this particular community still has lead pipes. That says a lot. Right. It, it means that there was a community. Um, that somebody was representing where there was a community that had the, the wealth and the political capital over the years to say, you know, one, stop putting these pipes here and or, you know, remove these pipes as we do infrastructure projects, you know, over the last 20 or 30 years. And I think a big part of that has been, you know, by design, like to, to continue to, um, you know, keep, you know, some of these other communities, right, predominantly black communities and, and other communities of color and poor communities um, from being able to advocate for themselves, right, and from having the, the political representation to uh, fix, you know, fix these problems. How are you approaching this? Uh, I mean, uh, probably both, but from folks you're, uh, folks you're working with and other attorneys, is, are you putting from a civil or criminal or both? Predominantly civil. So at, at, at NRDC, we don't do, uh, you know, we don't do criminal enforcement. Uh, uh, so we've, you know, we've definitely. But, but would you would you pass it on to DOJ or something like that if you oh, yeah, or, yeah, or I, I, state I, attorney if you found something? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think we've we've definitely been where there have been instances of, um, you know, I mean, Flint is a prime example, right? Where where it's gotten into this space of okay, this is more than just uh, an environmental mishap. Somebody intentionally made this decision and should be criminally held accountable, mm-hmm. right? I, I think it's situations like that where. You know, yeah, I, th- I think we we definitely believe that folks should be held accountable. But to the extent that, like, we, uh, you know, we're able to engage directly and represent clients and actually file lawsuits, it's uh, all on on the on the civil side. And that you know, that civil side predominantly deals with um, you know holding 
the violator is accountable, right? And in some instances, it's the federal government. In other instances, it's, it's either state or, or local government and violators uh, and trying to figure out the best ways to get remedy for them, you know, for those impacted communities through, uh, through the court system. When we were working on Flint, um, you know, demonstration was a key component to that to bring that to light. Um, and it didn't matter. Please, please, folks who were listening, understand that when Flint took place, it took place when we had a Democrat in, in the White House um, and even drinking the water. <laughs> but <laughs> when, you, when you're doing this work, that's one of the things I think that's, that's, that folks understand is different. That doesn't matter who's in charge. You got to speak truth to power. That's, that's, that's the thing that you have to do. But one thing we also realize is that demonstration without litigation and legislation leads to frustration. So the one thing here, Jeremy, is that litigation takes so long, though, man. It just takes so long. Explain. People just get impatient waiting for it. And then, then when, when, they, when, they, when it comes out at the end, it doesn't, it's, sometimes folks are dead. I mean, I mean, it just seems like, you know, I mean, so how do we, I mean, how do we deal with that aspect from a movement standpoint? Yeah. And I think, you know, even before answering that, going back to something that, you know, kind of you mentioned, right? And it's funny because I said this to, I was speaking to a group of students yesterday um, on, a, on a webinar, a college and kind of law students around um, environmental issues. And somebody asked specifically about Flint and, and kind of these, you know, water, other water issues where accountability, how do we hold these, these officials accountable? And, you know, I spent time clarifying, right? Like it, it's, definitely about holding these officials accountable, but being clear, and I, I mentioned that, it was like Flint happened, right? It may have been a Republican governor, right? But there was a Democratic president. There was a Democratic EPA, right? right. Who heard the same calls and did nothing, right? When, 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 when folks were saying our water was contaminated, right? It was the same EPA that kind of glossed over the issue and said, well, no, seems fine, right? We're going to kick it back to the state. And, and that speaks to the issue of, of getting to your point, right, of, of litigation and legislation, it's systemic, right? Regardless of who's in charge, right? Like there, there's going to be ways to game the system, right? And, and part of that, big part of that is because the laws and the policies in place now allow the system to be gamed, right? Mm. Regardless of who's in charge. If the rules are set up that way, there's nothing that the people in charge can do unless we're, you know, unless they're changing the rules or unless, as you mentioned, we're building a movement and doing the demonstration and advocacy with the with the eye towards changing the laws and policies around it, and I think that's been uh, you know that that's been critical over these last few years. Uh, you know, um, especially around lead and drinking water, as as we've seen bubble up. Right, the, the issue has gotten a lot of attention. Is to the point, as I mentioned now, right, the, the, it, it's a big part of the White House's infrastructure plan. But then also, you know, we've seen the the federal EPA. Uh, you know, revise their lead and copper roof for the first time in 30 years, even though folks have been, been saying for years there's something wrong with it. We've seen enough community support, enough advocacy say, like, man, there's time to do something. I mean, we actually need a change that fixes the problem and gets to the root of the problem. Like, we need the rules to change, right? Mm. And, and then, as you mentioned, with litigation, um, like that, that, that's rarely, for me, right, it, it's rarely uh, the first choice because I know that it's going to be a long time before we get anything settled. Like, rarely... You know, we, you know, NRDC partnered with ACLU to sue around the Flint water crisis and, um, you know, also was able to, to, to sue uh, for the Newark water crisis and was involved in the Pittsburgh water crisis. But those are anomalies, right? Like those were able to get settled uh, fairly quickly, right, in the scheme of how litigation typically works, especially at the federal level. Mm-hmm. And those got settled fairly quickly and you got to the point of replacing the lead pipes in these cities. But like, that's not the norm, right? Those are after something else took place, something egregious enough triggered a lawsuit where we could say, 
man, this happened and this, this, this needs to be fixed. But in other cities and other places around the country, that's not the case, right? It's not the case that, um, you know, somebody lied or somebody wasn't transparent or somebody mismanaged. It's the case that these lead pipes are in the ground because somebody allowed them and the rules to allow them to be in the ground. And that's when we get to this place of, of needing that movement to be built to hold, you know, our appointing the elected officials accountable to change the rules. As you mentioned, that litigation in, in, in many other instances, in every other instance, man, that, that stuff drags out for years. Like you mentioned, by the time you even get a solution, um, you know, folks, are, folks have, have been irreparably harmed, right? Their that's physical, right. mental, emotional well-being. Folks are no longer alive, right? You're talking about a settlement. You know, when you look at some places where financial settlements are taking place around issues of lead or even, you know, this new kind of emerging issue around uh, PFAS contamination in drinking water and, uh, you know, that being caused by private, you know, industries and chemical companies and like, people are going to be gone, right? People are going to be gone by the time this problem is solved. So, you know, how do we get to that quick, that quicker fix? And I think, as you mentioned, it, it has to be longer term systemic kind of legislative and, and policy change. That's right. No, that's right. Tell the audience um, about the history of environmental groups working on water issues and lead issues and how and how that has sometimes failed to serve black communities. Yeah, you know, especially when we think about these these larger organizations like like ones I work for, right? Like an NRDC, like an Earth Justice, like a Sierra Club, right? A, a League of Conservation Voters, right? We we know the history of the foundations of conservation. Uh, and environmental advocacy were, 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 were not like really meant to include right, communities of color. And they weren't meant to get to these issues of, of justice. They were meant to protect and preserve the environment for oftentimes the use of a, a certain sect of people, right? Who could, who, could, who could afford and who had access to the environment, right? So when we think of the foundings of many of these types of organizations, uh, while that may not have been founded with ill intentions, right? They, they were definitely founded not with the, the plights of our communities in mind. So we've seen them take these issues on for years and fail. Reason being, you know, they were lacking the input and decision-making and, uh, and they, were, they were lacking the, the meaningful engagement of the, the communities who are directly impacted by this issue, right? And I think that's a critical piece of this work. But I think that's also why we've seen this work become much more successful now because it's now including the communities who are directly impacted, the communities who should be finding the solutions for themselves, the communities that should be at the table and making these decisions, they're showing up, right? And they're, they're being included in a meaningful way. Whereas before, I think on a number of issues, right, water and, and, and climate and the like, I think we, we failed, you know, especially the large organizations have failed because we've, we've lacked solutions um, that have accounted for the communities most directly impacted by it. Who are some of the grassroots groups doing this work? Yeah, you know, especially when I, when I think about water in particular, um, you know, and as we talked about water being life, there are, you know, a number of organizations around the country who have been, you know, working on these issues for years. But, but in particular, I, I'm fortunate enough to be, uh, you know, be from the city of Detroit, where we've had two of kind of the, some of the preeminent organizations working on this nationally, right? One being uh, People's Water Board Coalition, who has been fighting for um, you know, affordable water and fighting for water as a human right for some time now. We, we have uh, We the People of Detroit, right, who's been a vocal voice nationally um, on this issue of, of, of water rights, right, and, and water security, not just in Detroit, but, but nationally. We've seen these groups create platforms and policies that are being implemented 
and places around around the country. And then also when I think of you know kind of national work taking place, organizations like you know the Community Water Center uh, out in California, right, or, or the Campaign for Land Free Water, um, kind of based out of the East Coast, kind of DC area. I think there are a number of organizations who have really uh, organized and, 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 and pulled folks into this work in a way that's lifted it up uh, and kind of put it at the forefront of, of these environmental issues. No, we need, we need more of them too. That's one of the things. Uh, you know, we had a conversation um, earlier in which we were talking about how much money was going to environmental justice groups. And literally out of the, uh, it was only 1.3% of the, mm-hmm. the funding process of, money was going to. So we need to up that so that we can have more of these, these groups um, doing this amazing work that they're doing. You know, actually let's, let's talk about holding uh, people accountable and particularly about just, and this is in general, but you know, who was responsible for the quality of the infrastructure in our communities? And if you can break that down a little bit for, for folks. Yeah, sure thing. So there, you know, there are, you know, a, a couple of ways to look at it, right? In most places, there's there's typically a you know a municipal government, right? You had you live in a city or a town, a village, where wherever you live, right? There's a there's a municipal government that usually has a municipal owned water system, right? Or a municipal owned kind of sewage and stormwater system. So in those instances, right, you'll have the city owned water department, right? That's responsible for the infrastructure, right? The infrastructure upgrades, right? And and in other instances, you'll have you know, private utilities, private private water companies, um, you know, that have a contract with the city and they're, they're responsible for it. At the end of the day, I think in most instances, you know, we, especially when we think about infrastructure upgrades, um, you know, when we break it down, it's, you know, your, 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 your state and your city and your water system are responsible for making these decisions around, um, you know, where are we improving infrastructure? Where are we upgrading infrastructure? And, and as a byproduct of that, where are we not doing work, right? And so when we think of it in that manner, and it's really, you know, it, it's it's our, you know, at the state level, it's our governors who are, who are appointing these, you know, environmental, state level environmental protection agency directors who are responsible for, um, you know, managing or, or governing, uh, regulating these water systems. In other instances at the, you know, local level, it's a mayor, right? It's a mayor who appoints mm. the commissioner or the director or CEO of the of the of the city water system, right? Who then has the authority to to figure out, like with the planning department, figure out where are we going to do infrastructure projects in our community, uh, where are we going to prioritize, and what is that priority going to be on, right? And 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 you know, oftentimes we've seen that priority not be focused on land. It's been other infrastructure upgrades. In particular, there's been other water infrastructure upgrades. You know, I've mentioned, you know, working a lot in, in Chicago and in, in the NRDC office that I work out of being in Chicago. You know, city of Chicago spent the last 10 years replacing 900 miles of water main and didn't touch the lead service lines. And mm. so 10 years, 900 miles. But that was somebody's plan, right? The city created a plan that said, we're going to dig up the ground, replace the water mains and not touch, not touch the lead service lines that are there. Right. So now you look at that and it's like, man, that city's going to have to go back and replace all those lead service lines and do all that construction all over again. Right. So it, it really falls down to decision makers at the city level. And, you know, it's very local. Right. We're talking mayors and city councils, and supervisors, uh, you know, our elected officials and appointed officials who have ultimate say right over these. And, and, and in the instance that it's, you know, a, a private water system, they're typically regulated by a state level body. Right. So in some instances, there is maybe some sort of utility board 
right, that makes the decisions, right, or at the very least, the legislature, right, that covers all of that. But there are, you know, regulators of private utilities as well to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And, and they're ultimately responsible for holding, you know, these water systems accountable, especially the private water systems accountable. Jeremy, let me ask you a question here. It's actually, this is actually a very important question from the standpoint of, you know, I'm sure you know, I uh, I get out there into those streets <laughs> quick, and we raise with some good folks, some good good trouble, and raise and raise and raise a little bit of noise. And I bring this up now because, from the standpoint that many folks thought, and it was a part of it, that the la- that the reckoning with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd was a a reckoning when we begin to deal with race. But to me, actually, that that conversation really takes place um, within our movement. It takes place around the issue of Michael Brown, Eric Garner, and Flint, because all that's happening. And it takes place, as I said before, um, in the standpoint of the backdrop of, in some cases, Republican governors, but in some cases, a Democrat administration. And really what's taking place around that time frame, and there's folks who this is the beginnings of the the Black Lives Matter movement around 2014. Really starts around Trayvon Martin, but really around 2014, it really gets it gets going. All these things are happening at this time frame. Um, I bring this up because what really happens in 2014 around this time frame is that Black folk are done dying. That's really what it is. And young Black folk, and you know, I mean, I mean, folks. Like yourself, myself, folks who are operating now in the 21st century, not in the 20th century, young black folks, and 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 particularly even younger black folks from like the Gen Z and that that grouping, the the teens and a little bit older than that, are really done dying. And so there's a there's a bit of this when we have these conversations about infrastructure and the quality of infrastructure and these lead pipes. We are tired. I don't care who it is, Republican or Democrat. We are sick and tired um, of being sick and tired, in the words of Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, and we are done dying. And so, Jeremy, I'm going to be quite honest. Uh, we are at a boiling point right now. There is no way possible we can allow for people to be drinking and living around lead and in, and polluted water. That that just, We can't allow that to happen. That's got to stop. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think you know, of all the stuff you mentioned, right? One, the, the interconnectedness of it, right? And, and even if I could take a step back, man, when I, when I talk about these issues, right, in particular environmental issues and, and, and in particular water, like I, I, I say all the time, right, and related to what you said, the, the like criminal law enforcement and environmental enforcement have so many parallels. To me, they're almost the exact same, right? And they have been for quite some time, right? And if, if, you know, our, our, our communities are, are over-policed, over-prosecuted, right? Um, we're, we're dying in the streets at the hands of, of, of law enforcement, right? You think of all of, of you know, mass incarceration, you think of all of these issues related to, to, to the criminal justice system um, and how we're, we're subject to that, right? And, and I think of that and I always say, you know, if I'm white, if I'm wealthy, right? If I have some influence out in the criminal justice system, I'll at least get my day in court. Right. Like if I get pulled over, I'll make it home. I could be wrong. Right. But if I get, you know, if I get pulled over, I'll make it home. Right. And, and now I'll figure it out. Right. If, if, if I'm a member of this, this certain demographic or of this certain class, if I'm black, no. Right. I'm barely right. I, 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 I'd, I'd be lucky to make it home after a routine traffic stop. 
right? And then when I think about environmental law and environmental enforcement, like it's the same thing, right? If I'm if I'm wealthy, if I'm white, if I got some money, if I live out in the suburbs, you know about the you know you're not putting that steel plant here, right? You're not putting you know there aren't going to be lead pipes out here. My water's not going to be contaminated, right? It's not it's not happening in my backyard, right? But man, if I'm black, if I'm brown, if I'm indigenous, I'm I'm paying the highest water rates, right? I'm subsidizing the suburbs. My water is getting shut off. My water is contaminated. I'm living next to the the oil refinery. I'm living next to the hazardous waste treatment plant. All of that, man, we're subject. And so whenever I think of this work and that 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 thought of us, like, man, we're done dying, like thinking of like that also is is beginning right now, translating to these issues of environmental issues, right? Not only are we done dying in the streets at the hands of law enforcement, we're done dying a slow death, right? Mm-hmm. A, a slow death of, of lead poisoning, right? We're done dying a slow death of of cancer caused by you know, the, the oil refinery polluting, you know, a, a hundred yards from my grandparents' backyard, right? And I think that's a space where a lot of folks, right, especially in this climate justice movement and this environmental justice movement that has really just exploded, man, kind of over the last, feels like 10 to seven years. Like, I think it, it's really being driven by a lot of young people, young Black people who are saying, like, yeah, we're, we're, we're done, right? We're done dying. No, we are done. We done dying. For folks, if you listen, we done. It is... It's, you know, I mean, listen, for many of us, people of faith, we have a, a faith system that, you know, may, has hope and faith and all that. But for real, you know, we, we still want to live and we want to live good on this side of Jordan. <laughs> we ain't trying to <laughs> we ain't trying to go to the other side of Jordan to figure it out. We want to live good on this side of Jordan. And we, and we, and we want this Jordan to be lead free. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> we, want, we want this. We want this Jordan to be lead free. Um, you know, Jeremy, what, what is the state? Of drinking water right now, and and how was the Biden administration doing at matching its big its big plans with the needs for the communities living with water and lead and lead pollution? Yeah, so and the, the the state of drinking water is is kind of in dire straits, right? And it's been bubbling. It's not new, but I think there is much more attention being paid to it. So I think there are a couple of different avenues, right? One is contamination, right, which we're talking about kind of right now, with lead in drinking water, right? So how do we how do we clean up people's water, right? There are you know, millions of Americans are drinking water, um, you know, hundreds of millions. Right? I, think, I think the number was maybe over 130 million Americans uh, are drinking water from a system that has some sort of contamination and violation, right? So, and, and that's across all 50 states. So no state is, is, is exempt from having water systems with drinking water contamination. So we have vast, you know, amount of our population drinking contaminated water. The other piece of that is this crisis of water affordability. Right, water has doubled and tripled in many places over the last, uh, you know, over the last uh, ten years, over the last decades. We're seeing water rates now, mind you, right, we're, and we're not talking about consumption, right, increasing. We're not talking about any anything else being introduced. We're not even talking about infrastructure being fixed because these places where you know their their water rates are rising, doubling and tripling. They're still, you know, getting water from crumbling lead infrastructure that's 70, mm. 80 years old, right? So we're, we're trying to figure out, like, what's, what's taking place, right? How, are, how is the water doubling and tripling in certain communities around the country? Um, but yet we're not seeing any benefit from that, that was raising fees and raising water rates. So then we have this issue of affordability. We have this issue of contamination. And we have this issue of, of folks who are on the margins, right, who just may need a little support. They can, they can afford their bill if they have some relief, if they have some sort of assistance. And I think what we've been seeing now from this Biden administration has been a couple of things, right? I think the big thing has been uh, this commitment to want to 
uh, get rid of all the lead pipes in the country, right? And, and this plan. Uh, explain uh, that. Definitely explain that. That commitment yeah. right there. Yeah. So, the, you know, the Biden administration, um, you know, I think about a few months ago, as part of this, this, this infrastructure plan and this American Jobs Act have been pushing uh, uh, for $45 billion to replace all the lead pipes in the country. Uh, within a 10 year window. Right. So so doing it in a fairly, you know, fairly quick timeline for the whole country and replacing all all the lead pipes. Right. So I think that's significant. We've never seen a, a president, you know, make those sort of claims or commitments um, or have that as part of an agenda, uh, you know, as, as it relates to drinking water. I think the other thing we've seen is this push um, from the federal level around water assistance. Right. So we've been seeing, especially during the last year with this pandemic, we've seen a lot of people out of work, a lot of people needing uh, support to you know to to pay their bills and stick their water and so what we've seen is is the federal government as part of these COVID relief funds over the last year and a half have uh, finally allocated funds to say okay you can use these at the state level you can use this money for relief of bills right people who who need that support in their water bill people who may be behind people who need to get their water turned back on who have been shut off even before the pandemic right which sounds crazy but you know people who have been shut off of water for years. Right. So that, that's another thing I think we've seen. And I think there's also been this push for the, the creation of some sort of federal um, uh, low income water assistance program. Right. Which is which I think is vastly needed. But then the next step up from there needs to be addressing you know, affordability. It needs to really be um, there needs to be a human right. Right. A, a secured human right, a constitutional right for all people to have access to clean drinking water, regardless of ability to pay. I think we're seeing some states like New York actually, right, is, has a has a measure on the ballot. I think this fall, that's I think it's an environmental rights ballot, right, and part of that includes access to water as a human right. Um, the, the 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 constitutional, like the constitutional amendment to enforce it, right, legally as a, as a human right. So um, yeah, I think you know we've seen the Biden administration begin to move on this, and and you know hope that they continue to stand strong on that agenda and continue to to move into this area of making sure everybody has access to safe water, um, regardless of ability, safe water and sanitation, right? Regardless of ability mm -hmm. to, to pay. Man, Jeremy, this time always goes, so I just got a few more questions. This time always goes fast. I, people, I say, people always, when they, when they happen, I say, man, that time went fast. But <laughs> I, I got to ask you this question. Um, and you can answer, you can answer, you can say, man, that's a little too much or it's not too much, you know, if you feel like it, this, this one, but, you know, when I was in Detroit, um, I took a tour by the Marathon Refinery plant, and um, you could smell this the pollution. And and I remember um, talking to a brother who said that they they put up white crosses for all the folks who died of cancer in that community, and almost every single yard had a a white cross in the yard. And then we went past a schoolhouse that was literally, I mean, literally a, a, a stone's throw away from the plant. And then we went to the other side of Detroit where there was the landfill and, the, and, and literally, uh, you know, just the waste right in the middle by the hospital and other schools. And then we went on to another, another spot of town where they had these folks who was getting basically terrible water lead lead poison induced water from lead pipes but the water they had the audacity to have the almost the largest water bills i mean they was paying more for their water bills than they were in some cases for their rent like it was outrageous yeah. 
it seems to me, and I don't throw this word around that often, but it's real close to genocide. It's real close to almost exterminating our people. How, how do you how do you deal with that when you think about those kind of things? Man, I mean, I think that's spot on. The the the, the neighborhood that you took a tour of—that's the neighborhood I mentioned where my my parents met and married and, and grew up in, and where they were raised in. And you know, I mentioned that's the neighborhood where I spent my summers at my grandparents' house, and literally, as you mentioned, was a throne stone you know stones throw away from from the oil refinery right across their backyard. Right, my grandfather was one of those people in that community who died in that community from cancer right in the nineties. So. You know, that it gets right. It's really real. It's probably it and it's personal. Right. Especially, as you mentioned, when you can, you can just drive around and see it. Right. But your house is right across the street. Right. Your, your school is right down the street. Right. From from these, you know, these polluting places. And the idea, like you mentioned, that, you know, you have contaminated water, yet you're paying, you know, some of the highest bills in the country. Right. We think of, you know, the city of Detroit a few years back shut off 40,000 people one summer from water. Right, so your water is contaminated, or you may not have water. Right, the idea that you don't have that access is is insane. And I think it, it's been over the last couple of years there's been this emerging body of, of study of work called ecocide, which is what you're getting at. You call it genocide, right? But we're talking now genocide directly related to environmental or, or ecological um, degradation. And I think this fits right into it. Right, it, it's it's to say like, man, like how do you have an entire, you know, the black blackest city in America, right? Like the, the, the still, you know, highly, highly populated, right? We're still over probably 80% black and, you know, rest is majority brown folks, right? Like how do you, how do you justify the behavior from a water system and from a city um, like this when we know, when we know this wouldn't happen anywhere else, right? Well, we know this wouldn't happen in, in, in a community that doesn't look like ours, right? And, and yeah, I think that's spot on. Like it feels intentional. It is intentional, right? Because all it takes is for, you know, a water system to say, okay, we're going to stop shutting people off. All it takes for a water system to say, okay, we're going to, we're going to do what we need to do to get these lead pipes out of the ground. We'll figure it out, right? But the idea that you mentioned that we're paying these high water bills and I'm not even seeing a return on that, right? There's mm-hmm. still lead pipes in the ground and my water's still contaminated. Like it doesn't make sense. And then you compound that with all of the other environmental issues, right? There's hazardous waste. You know, one of the things, you know, I thought you were going to mention, but not too far from me, there's a hazardous waste treatment plant in the middle of a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Right? Hazardous waste, right? And then you got landfills and then you got oil refineries and steel mills. And yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say, right? That means somebody had to make the decision to allow those to be there in these neighborhoods. And, and yeah, it, it definitely feels, uh, it really feels intentional. What does winning look like? Man, at the at the most basic level, right? Especially if I'm just narrowing in on 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 water, right? Now I think we could talk about this in a number of different areas. But if I'm just narrowing in on water, man, winning looks like getting on, on contamination, getting these lead pipes out of the ground, right, as fast as possible, right? It's it's completely removing them, right? Not negotiating whether or not we need to test more, not giving people filters, right, to filter their lead water, but getting removing lead pipes from the system completely to remove lead from there. I think that's one way. I think another part of that is like, kind of like I mentioned, ensuring that, you know, people have safe, clean water as a human right. Like that's winning, right? So so water that's, that you can drink, water that you can afford. And if you can't afford it, like you still should have access to it. All right. So I think winning looks like really, but, but that's reforming, you know, really the system, right? That's reforming the system to be focused on people and public health rather than, Profit, 
Jeremy, so give give folks the uh, website and social media if, if they want to uh, get what you will or NRDC. Yeah, yeah, sure thing. So our website is nrdc.org. Uh, you know, if you go on there, you'll see our experts page and you can just search my name. It'll show kind of all of my work and blogs and writings. And, you know, so you can keep up with my work there. But then also, uh, you know, I try to share much of my work as possible on Twitter to continue to get the message out about what's going on. So my Twitter is, is just simply uh, Jeremy F or all one word. So J-E-R-E-M-Y-F-O-R-R. That's our guest today. And he is Jeremy Orr, the senior attorney for NRDC Safe Water Initiative. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.